Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Many businesses claim they're going green, but what does that really mean? How do they really do it? Our guest today is Auden Schindler, the Director of Sustainability at the Aspen Ski Company and the author of Getting Green Done. Schindler was named a Global Warming Innovator by Time Magazine in 2006 and later testified to Congress on the impact of climate change on public lands. Today, he will speak about the difficulty of implementing climate solutions in the real world. Are energy-efficient light bulbs just for cheap motels? He found out they have a special place in one luxury hotel. His focus is on taking direct action to reverse the effects of climate change. He shares some humorous and insightful anecdotes about making a posh Colorado ski resort greener, as well as advice on how every one of us can actively participate in the green revolution. Are companies such as Ford and Walmart greenwashing or making real change? Now let's join Auden Schindler at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Thanks for coming, and in return for your taking your Tuesday night with me, I have provided you with a sexy ski shot, which you expect when you come to see the guy from Aspen. Um, and, and if I didn't put this up, I know you'd be disappointed. And Tuesday night, you worked all day, your life is tough, you didn't get a cocktail, and the speaker comes up and puts that up? Oh no, you think, this is going to be a catastrophe. I'm, I'm only going to talk for about half an hour and then we'll have questions. But if you look at this picture, this is a walk-in cooler. And uh, what happened is a mechanic kind of engineer guy who had some time was in the cooler and he said, hey, you know what? This wall here is an exterior wall. I think I'm going to take a sawzall and a power tool and cut a hole in the wall. And I'm going to put this vent in there and I'm going to tie it to a compressor. And so when it's cold enough outside, the vent will open, the compressor will shut down because it's also tied to a thermostat, and we'll get free cooling. Wait, actually, it's a ski resort. It's always cold outside. We're going to have free cooling all the time. This is an example of replacing energy with intelligence. One scarce resource, energy, replaced with an even more scarce resource, intelligence. And solving energy, replacing it with intelligence, is solving climate. And as we're going to see, climate is, is the issue that we're talking about. Just to take a step back, though, historically, if you looked at the environmental movement, 
Until recently, green business or sustainability meant highway cleanup programs or recycling and compostable silverware. And uh, the reason for that is that there was no understanding of the scale and scope of the climate problem. Um, the science was all there. Uh, my, I took my first climate course 20 years ago, and the science is more or less exactly the same. Um, but until sustainability, with the exception of population issues, we didn't know what to do. It was pretty simple. Do the recycling, do the compostable silverware, do the highway cleanup, give some money to the Sierra Club, done. All that's changed. And the reason that the public understanding of climate has changed is not the press, but it's that we now can physically see it. And Australia is, a, is ground zero for climate. This is a slide from 2005, and that is January and that's May. And brown is bad. And Australia in 2003 had a 100-year drought, which means you should experience that kind of a drought every 100 years. In 2006, they had a 1,000-year drought. In 2007, they had the first climate election, and they kicked out John Howard, who was an absolute imbecile on climate policy. Australia was the only country other than the U.S. not to ratify Kyoto. And in 2008, the southeast corner of this slide uh, of Australia, which is very brown, entirely burned for the most part. And what burned were these, was beautiful wine country like Sonoma, the Sonoma of Australia, the Yarra Valley, where I had visited. And I called a, a friend. I said, how'd you guys do in these fires? And he said, it's all gone. Imagine Sonoma being gone. Um, and the words he used were gruesome because whole cities were destroyed and hundreds of people were burned to death in Australia. These are all things that the climate models say we'll see more of over time. The drought in particular is, is in your face. The North Pole, I don't even need to talk about. You've heard it a billion times. Um, but in 2007, the polar ice cap, which in summer has been there for three million years, more or less melted away. And the science, scientific community tells us that it's going to be gone in 10 to 15 to 40 years. Well, that's mind-boggling, and it got people's attention. So the scale and scope of climate is increasingly understandable to us. And when you understand it um, and understand that climate change doesn't just mean, ah, it's going to be two degrees warmer. So instead of being 70, it's going to be 72. Well, that's not what's going to happen. If you think about the ice age, it was caused by a six degree Celsius shift in the other direction. And that covered the North America with a mile of ice. So this is, these are profound changes that have nothing to do with it being a little warmer. Um, it has to do with how populations migrate, how disease spreads, uh, how food is grown. And these are profound and horrifying and scary challenges. And the press finally has gotten it and said, instead of, hey, what's happening on the science? You decide. Well, they got it. There is no doubt on the science. And now they're saying, what are we going to do about it? Now that you know that, what's to keep you from leaving this talk, going home, getting in the closet, getting a bottle of bourbon, grabbing your knees, rocking back and forth, and phoning in for Chinese food? Seriously, it's so scary and so overwhelming. What keeps you going? And part of what I'm going to talk about tonight is the, the, what can keep us going in the face of these overwhelming challenges. Our perception of what's beautiful and inspirational is changing. 
If you look at that picture of the maroon bells, just the mountains, that's on every desk calendar you've ever had. Um, it's one of the most photographed sets of peaks in the world. But one day while I was out skiing, I took a shot of this solar array we have with a crappy electronic camera. And the picture has been published in 12 national magazines. I've received no income from that uh, and no recognition. Uh, but the point is our perception of beauty is changing. The technical solutions to climate change are beautiful, and that's inspiring. So before we get into all that theory, I want to take you to the ground to a five-star hotel called the Little Nell, where we started our work. And I put that quote up there to annoy you a little bit. It's Aspen, five-star hotel. Is that slightly annoying to you, an intimate country inn? When I got out of the nonprofit sector, where I was taught that the first thing you do in sustainability is a lighting retrofit. It's cheap, it has huge payback, it reduces CO2 in the atmosphere. This is how you start sustainability. This is how you solve climate. Um, I went to the Little Nell, and I, I went to the manager and I said, hey, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna swap out all the bulbs in your room, with, in all your 90 rooms, with compact fluorescence. It'll save you money. The return on investment is almost 100%. And it'll cost very little. And you won't have to replace the bulbs as much. They last 10 times as long. So your, your staff will be able to help guests fork split their muffins or uh, deal with the little doggy they brought in from Europe. This is the fanciest place in the world. So just to give you a sense, um, there are 90 master sommeliers in the U.S. And we have two of them at the Nell because we, we have to provide that service to our guests. So what did the hotel manager say? Uh, no, we're not doing that. Well, in the nonprofit sector, I was taught that no one in the business community would turn down a, a huge, in this case, it was a 100% return on investment. Why did he say no? He said to me, when I go to a Motel 6 and I turn on the light, that's a compact fluorescent. And this is a five-star hotel. I don't want people coming into the room, turn on the light, flick, flick, flicker, wah, and you feel like you're about to do surgery or you just walked into the janitor's closet by accident. So he said, we're not doing that. Okay, here's something you'll never hear in the EnviroGuru community. How did I make this happen? How did I succeed with the lights in the room? Was it the beauty of the idea? Uh, was it the... Um, the return on investment, green is green. No, I failed. I never succeeded. The rooms still have incandescence, and we're still trying to replace it 10 years later. You'll never hear that because everyone's conflicted. No one can say, if you're an architect at, at these green conferences, imagine getting up and saying, hey, I totally screwed this building up, and, and now I'm going to talk for half an hour about all the mistakes I made, and at the end, are you going to say, I'm going to hire that guy? Probably not. Governments can't do this because their programs need to look good. Corporations are trying to look good. Um, so it's incredibly difficult to find someone who's willing to speak honestly about these challenges. I failed. We still haven't fixed the rooms. What did we do next? I went into the hallway, and there were these wall sconces like this on 24-7. Okay, I understand you can't change the bulbs in the rooms. I'm going to change the wall sconces in the hallway. They're on all the time. It's going to be a huge, huge energy savings. And the manager said, no. Why? And he said, Auden, 
there's this guy who comes every year to the hotel, a mystery guest, samples the wine, goes to the spa, gets him a stop massage. That's the five-star, five-diamond, triple-A mobile auditor. What if that guy walks in and feels that that greenish light um, doesn't flatter the guest and it makes him depressed in the hallway, and he downgrades us by one star? In the hotel industry, that's the apocalypse. That's the end of the world. You're, if you're a hotel manager and you lose a star in your tenure, you're the biggest loser in the community. Um, you might lose your job, and that's going to follow you for your whole career. Who cares if at the Little Nell you spend an extra $100,000 a year on energy? It doesn't matter. So how did we fix the hallways? We didn't fix it. Instead, I went to a place where I'm much more comfortable, uh, the, the garage. How many of you have heard of the Easy Bake Oven? Easy Bake Oven, a, a small children's toy where you put in little berry pies and things and you close the door and you turn it on and, uh, and you turn it on and a light goes on. And when I was a kid, I thought, why are we lighting this food? Aren't we supposed to be cooking the food? Well, the reason you're lighting the food is that the incandescent bulb is the, one of the most spectacularly inefficient things ever created. Basically, the concept behind it is you, you heat it so much that it glows and it happens to give off light. So that would be equivalent to me saying, you know, I'm a little chilly in here. I'm going to get 25 computers and turn them all on and we'll heat the room with it. Now, it would work, but how stupid and unbelievably inefficient. And that's what these guys are. These are, this is a 400-watt space heater that happens to give off light. And we have 200 of them on all the time in the garage. Okay, you're the hotel manager, and I'm making the pitch to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retrofit these bulbs. Forget the rooms. Forget the hallways. I'm going to retrofit these bulbs with linear T8s. Here's the, the financial proposition. You need to pay $20,000 to fix these bulbs, to swap them all out you will save $10,000 a year in energy every year, 50% return on investment. The old bulbs last 4,000 hours. The new bulbs last 25,000 hours, so you don't have to change them as much. The old bulbs cost 70 bucks a piece. The new bulbs cost 4 bucks a piece. Great. You're going to get better light. Do you see these posts in this picture? We had to pad. We used old carpet scraps to pad the posts because the valets were banging the doors of Bentleys and Porsches and causing tens of thousands of dollars in damage. They couldn't see. So the light's going to get better, and you can actually see. All that. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you. You're going to save 300,000 pounds of CO2 every year. Just gravy. You can market that or not. It makes tons of sense. Would the hotel manager say, no? Why? Why wouldn't, I, why wouldn't you do it? Auden, you idiot, which is how much of my communications are prefaced. Um, <laughs> we're a five-star hotel. If I've got an extra 20 grand in my pocket, I'm going to buy high thread count sheets and better wine. We might hire another sommelier so we can have a 24-7 sommelier staff. We're not going to... Fix the garage where nobody goes. This is sustainability 101. This is the first thing you do because it's so profitable, and then you do all the hard stuff. 
we're an ethical corporation with a mandate for change and a position funded to do sustainability, and we can't do the most basic thing. This project was submitted six years in a row and kept getting denied. How is it possible to solve climate where we have to reduce CO2 80% by 2050? Wait, we didn't even do, we couldn't even do the first thing. How'd we get it done? This is something you'll never hear in the environmental guru community. We forced it down the guy's throat. I went to the, the CEO, who's this guy, Pat O'Donnell. We have a new CEO now, but this guy, tough guy, had been on the first American attempt of Annapurna. Half his team got killed. One time he crawled out of uh, Peru with a broken leg. Uh, he hiked the John Muir Trail here in California, 200 miles, without a sleeping bag or tent, because Chenard and another guy told him that was how you did it. And they hadn't done it that way, but he fell for it. I said, Pat, what are we doing? We have this environmental program, and we can't even do sustainability 101. It's got a 50% return on investment. Why even have my position? So we forced the guy to do it. Eventually, he came around, and he appreciated it. But even when we had got it done, and we had approval and funding, the engineers said, oh, you can't do that. Oh, oh why not? Well... There was a hotel in Oakland, a garage in Oakland, and some guys took a baseball bat and they bashed that bulb out and then they attacked somebody. And I said, okay, Aspen's not exactly Oakland, but let's, let's presume it is. Let's presume it's as dangerous as Oakland. Could you not take a baseball bat and knock that kind of bulb out too? And the engineer said, oh yeah, you could. Okay, so... Why can't, but you still can't do it, they said. Oh, why can't we do it? Well, you can't pressure wash the ceiling. When in the history of humanity has anyone pressure washed the ceiling of a garage underground where the, it's got blown foam on it? So th this was an epiphany for me. These guys didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do it, and they'd do anything they could to avoid doing it. And if you go into the history of the environmental movement, the classic environmentalist, the, 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 the reason they don't want to do it is that they're stupid, ignorant people who don't know about our children's future being at stake and our future prosperity. These people are imbeciles, right? No, they're very smart people who do their job well, and business as usual works. And the reason they recommend these metal halide bulbs is because they know they've got 20 years of experience. So it's not that change is hard, though change is hard. It's that business as usual has a lot going for it. And we've done plenty of, plenty of projects where we do new technology and it doesn't work and we get burned. So we finally made it happen. And actually, I could talk for several hours about this garage. Other things happened. But I'm not going to subject you to that or any more underground pictures or any more shots of this guy. <laughs> so as a company, we, we realized, holy cow, all this stuff on the ground is so brutally difficult. It's so hard. Um, what matters and what doesn't? And we thought, well, we have to think a little differently if we're really going to make, make some progress here. Um, we need to think more like Walmart. Walmart, which has been reviled in, in the environmental world, a number of years ago said, we want to be more green. And if they had asked, imagine you're the Walmart get customer, and I said, what, what should I do if I'm Walmart to be more green? The guest, the customer probably would have said, buy some hemp bags, get rid of plastic, 
put bamboo on the floors and, and do recycling in the store. And Walmart said, okay, that, that might be right, but let's ask a professor at Brown University. And they went to Brown, and the Brown professor said, you guys sell more stuff than anyone in the world. If you want to change the world and be green, change what and how you sell it. And they said, okay, we're going to try to sell 100 million compact fluorescent light bulbs. And if you do that, that's one bulb for every American household. And that would be equivalent to unplugging two 500-megawatt coal-fired power plants just through energy savings. Now, the climate community, the best science says, you can't build another coal plant if you want to solve climate. And California has banned coal plants. You will not build another coal plant in California. You probably won't see one in the U.S., maybe one or two. Um, and here's what Walmart did. They brought the price down. If, if, if you're as old as everyone in this room, you've seen... The bulbs came out and they were like 18 bucks a piece. Now they're a buck 50 because Walmart did what it does best and brought the price down. And there's some issues with that we won't talk about. Um, and, and then they put it at eye level instead of way up high or way down low where you couldn't find it. And they sold, to date, 260 million of those bulbs. Great, you go home, you're having a cocktail at the bar after this. What a cool story about Walmart. That's not the story. The story is that Walmart has helped drive the Easy Bake Oven out of business. That bulb, that spectacularly inefficient thing, you're not going to be able to buy in California in two years. Or, what is it, 2012, I think? Uh, Ireland's banned it. Australia's banned it. They drove it out of business. They pulled this huge lever. And it's profound, and, and this is what they need to be thinking about, not the little stuff on the ground. Other businesses have tried this kind of big lever think, and, and failed. And Ford, a number of years ago, wanted to be green, and they said, we're going to build, rebuild Henry Ford's plant in Dearborn, and we're going to make it super green. So they hired the great, the, the Starkitect, William McDonough, and they spent $2 billion rebuilding this plant. They put a green roof on it, which apparently leaks. That's confidential. Uh, and here's the problem. Ford makes cars. And the cars suck. They, they're terrible um, from an energy efficiency perspective. And that's what matters. Now, I'm not the guy from Aspen saying, I could have seen this coming. I probably would have built that plant myself. The point is, we can learn from those mistakes and learn how, as a, as a business, if we're looking for the big lever, you have to be brutally honest about the challenges and, and about what matters and what doesn't. So we realize that for Aspen, all the stuff we do on the ground may not matter at all. All the efficiency, all the renewables, um, green buildings, we've done all that. But that, we think, is only done, the, the rationale for doing it may be to give us credibility so that when we go to Congress, we have a leg to stand on. Advocacy for us is way more important than efficiency and renewables, as it is for individuals, because if, even if everyone in the world and every corporation did the right thing, everyone who is so inclined, we'd still fail to solve climate by a hundredfold. So, as Bill McKibben says, screw in that compact fluorescent light bulb, but then go screw in a new senator. And, and then Jules added, stop getting screwed by the old one. And, and that's the, the perspective. The, the, the message isn't, don't do these little things, but don't be deluded into thinking that these matter. It's the bigger picture. Do that stuff, and then get involved at a higher level. So how does a corporation pull big levers? 
I want to tell you about a, one of my great PR catastrophes. Um, I was sitting in the office one day. I got a phone call. It was Forest Ethics. And they said, would you guys ban Kimberly Clark tissue? Kleenex. And I said, why? And they said, well, their forestry practices are terrible, um, or at least pretty bad. There's no post-consumer waste in Kleenex. So you're blowing your nose in a virgin forest. Um, and they won't engage with the environmental community. And we said, sure, we'll ban it. Turns out we spend $25,000 a year on tissue. And to ban it was a piece of cake. We took it out of the Nell, replaced it with something comparable, equally soft. Um, and that was it. And then I made the mistake of calling the press. Hey, guys, we banned Kleenex. We joined this boycott. Pretty cool, huh? The press annihilated us because this was classic greenwashing. First, the response was, who are you guys to say that to criticize another corporation? You fly people from Europe uh, and their little doggy with them and send them up and down the slope using energy for no reason. You're not one to criticize. And I can talk about that later, uh, that apparent hypocrisy uh, of why I'm even able to talk to you about this subject. Um, but the other, the other thing was flagrant greenwashing. A corporation does something that takes no effort and then claims that they're big environmental heroes. The press killed us. The headlines in the paper were, one was, save the planet, eat a booger. Uh, another was... Uh, the issue with tissue. Another was Aspen Skiing Company says Kleenex, nothing to sneeze about. Ha, 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 ha. And it was so bad and so embarrassing that I ended up going to the CEO and saying, I apologize, this was a huge screw-up. This is a, one of the worst PR mistakes of my career, and I, I, I'm sorry, don't fire me. Uh, two weeks later, though, the phone rang. And it was the CEO of Kimberly Clark. Kimberly Clark's a $32 billion company. It's bigger than most countries in the world. So suddenly we were now having a conversation with the CEO of this massive entity that, if it changes, can really change the world. And he said, I want to send a team down to talk to you. And we met with the team, and we said, here's what we, we want you to do. And we made our three points about forestry practices and post-consumer waste. And we said, we want you guys to meet with an environmental group, the NRDC. And they got in the room with the NRDC as a result of our meeting with them. We're a rinky-dink little company. We really are teeny in the scheme of things. And they met, and apparently the meeting was a disaster and completely fell apart. Um, but the point is, we got that conversation going. And it is an ongoing dialogue. And what we did, you could compare it uh, to, to asymmetric warfare. This is a very small entity driving disproportionate change by pulling a huge lever. And it was it was profound. It was the most important thing we did that year, even though it was a colossal, uh, initially, PR mistake. Another example. I'm sitting in the office. Phone rings. It's the Natural Resources Defense Council. Would you guys file an amicus brief on Massachusetts versus EPA? And I say, sure. Uh, two questions. What's an amicus brief and what's Mass v. EPA? Well, it turns out Massachusetts versus EPA is the most important environmental lawsuit ever to go to the Supreme Court. It argued that the EPA should regulate carbon dioxide, the leading greenhouse gas, uh, greenhouse pollutant, 
as a, as a pollutant just like mercury. And under the Clean Air Act, that applies. So it had a good chance of passing. We filed the supporting brief and the lawsuit passed. Again, I'm not the guy from Aspen saying, we won the lawsuit for you, thank you very much. No, we just filed a brief. We weren't a plaintiff. But when the press covered it, it was, um, it was like this. 12 states, three major environmental groups, even a rinky-dink ski resort from Colorado uh, supported this lawsuit. Well, climate change is very hard for the public to understand. And when you throw a ski resort in there, suddenly it becomes clear to a lot of, oh, I don't need to know about atmospheric CO2. This is about skiing potentially ending because it's getting warmer. So it was a, it was a helpful angle on telling the story. Great. Another good story. That's not the story. Six weeks later, a review board in Kansas denied a coal plant for the first time in the history of the world. They said, you can't do this because of the damaging effects of the CO2 that will be emitted. This had never been done before, and it was the first, the only legal basis for this was Massachusetts versus EPA. When I heard that, I heard it around midday, I left the office, went skiing, and I, I called the CEO from the gondola, and I said, Mike, this is... Uh, the most important thing we've ever done, including opening our doors in 1947. And he said, I disagree with you, but you can keep skiing. Uh, this is now the basis of Obama's climate policy, and it's in the paper every day. This is EPA now has the authorization to regulate CO2. So even if we don't pass cap and trade or a carbon tax, we have the legal basis to move forward with a climate policy. So... Then we started to say, hey, when you leave this event, we, we recognize that you might go home, think about it for a while, and you'll be at a family reunion. And you're sitting around the table, and Uncle Herb is there. And you say, you know, I heard this talk, this guy in Aspen, um, talking about climate change. And Herb says, uh, uh, isn't there some doubt on the science? Well, why is Herb saying that? And why are there people in this room tonight who may not think the science is established. The reason is not that the science isn't established. We know more about this than almost anything ever in the history of science. It's completely set if you talk to the scientific community. And yet, there's this widespread misunderstanding of what's going on. In fact, American understanding of climate as a serious problem that's actually happening is decreasing. Fewer Americans care about it now than they did eight years ago. Why? the most successful and most damaging marketing campaign in the history of the world, funded by ExxonMobil and fossil fuel interests that didn't want to see this happen. This is not conspiracy theory. The CEO of Exxon said, we're going to stop funding that disinformation. So they have spent tens of millions of dollars to seed doubt in your minds. And it's so easy to do. If I said to you, vitamin E uh, can stunt the growth of your children. Oh, really? No, it can't. But you'd have to spend three weeks debunking it, and you don't have time if I didn't add that caveat. So it's so easy. So we said, maybe climate is a marketing problem. Maybe that's the whole issue. Because if we don't have enough popular support for policy change, the, the, the government isn't going to be able to make a move on this. So we just started an ad campaign. And this is it. It directs people to a website called savesnow.org that drives people toward political action primarily and then individual action secondarily. And when we released this campaign, Certificate of Death, we got a call the first day. The CEO got a call. Hey, uh, I'm 75. You know, I've worked in the P 
PR and marketing industry all my life. And uh, I was always told that you shouldn't associate your product with something negative, like, for example, death. And uh, the CEO said, I don't care, we're doing it. And this campaign has been going for three years now. So how do you, back to this question of, of how do you look at charts like this and keep going? The top chart, and this is 2005, it, it's worse now, um, you've seen before. Uh, climate is warming as CO2 increases. It just keeps happening. The bottom chart is a really scary one, though. The darker the red, the worse the temperature anomaly uh, in the area. And this is 2005 and 2008 and 2009. That anomaly was 9 degrees. Now, the problem is that that northern area that's warming is the exact place you don't want to warm because that's all frozen methane bog. Methane's 22 times more potent than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. If you warm that area in particular, it melts, burps methane, which creates more warming, which burps more methane, and you're in a positive feedback loop that you can't solve. That's happening right now, and we're really not getting any traction trying to solve it. In fact, we're getting worse. Um, how do you wake up every day and, get, and go back at it trying to solve these problems? For me, I've always looked for some level of inspiration, and... I've, I've often put quotes on my business card to inspire me and other people. It's, it's a little cheesy, admittedly. Uh, but my old quote was from this guy. This is the guy, you've been wondering who this is. Uh, he coined the phrase, think globally and act locally. It's Rene Dubose, a French-American bi a microbiologist who worked on tuberculosis. He was an environmentalist. Um, incredible guy. And his quote was, trend is not destiny. And it's so, it was so inspiring to me because we're, it says we're headed in this direction, but we don't have to end up there. But the more I studied climate science, the more I realized we're there. If you stopped emitting greenhouse gases today, we'd reset the planet at 1.5 degrees hotter than it is today. We're going to be in a warmed world. We're in a climate-changed world, and we're probably not going to stop it below several degrees of warming. So I need a new inspiration. I need a new model, a new mentor. This guy uh, is the one. This is the famous underground poet, postman, bar fighter, and alcoholic, Charles Bukowski, who in this picture is drinking and smoking at the same time. And what Bukowski said is, what matters most is how well you walk through the fire. And I love that because it puts you on a combat footing. You're coming to work like a Viking running into battle. Uh, whatever your job, you're working on climate today, or you will be. And, and Viking running into battle with the cleaver in the air and drunk on potato wine and fermented prunes or whatever they like to get drunk on. And it's as if, ending this talk, uh, I said, hey, you know, just to spice things up, I'm going to take one of you uh, out of the audience, and uh, you're going to fight Muhammad Ali for us, just as a little entertainment. You're not going to fight Ali from today. You're going to fight him from 1970. The most fearsome fighting machine the human species has ever created. And you say, uh, no, thank you. I've got to go to a uh, Thai dinner with my uncle or whatever. And I have a gun to your head. 
And I say, no, you have to fight this guy. That's what we face with climate. You have this unbelievably scary adversary, and you have to go out every day and engage. And I submit there are two approaches to engaging Ali in, in this unfortunate situation that you've now been placed in. One is you stand up and you kind of cover up and wait for Ali to pummel you into organ failure, and then I haul you out to the hospital and you may or may not survive. I submit that's not a great option. Option two, though, is to pretend you know how to fight. Take whatever limited information you have about fighting. Keep your chin down. Keep your right up. Try to knock the guy out. Because what choice do you have? It's going to be a lot more fun, and you might knock him out. You have no choice. You might as well go out and, 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 and take, that, take it on with relish, even take it on the challenge with joy. This is my daughter, Willow, when she was two. She's now four. And I used to give this presentation, and I would close it by saying, you know, this isn't our problem, it's Willa's problem. You've heard this before. We've screwed up the world, now she has to fix it. But James Hansen and Regenja Pachuri, the two leading climatologists in the world, um, or climate scientists, have said that we have to solve this problem in 10 years. Because the decisions we make on power plants and buildings and policy are durable decisions and that the change has to happen now or we're simply not going to solve the problem. So this isn't Willa's problem. It's our problem. She's not generation climate. You are. No matter how old you are, you're generation climate. And it's empowering to say that you can solve or fail to solve this problem in your lifetime. It's, I'm a whitewater kayaker, and kayakers always scout the runs before they paddle. But as you're scouting, you get increasingly uncomfortable and nervous. You just want to do it, even if it's really hard. And when you finally get the go, when you can go paddle it, you're relieved. There's a sense of relief. And I feel that sense of relief knowing we're going to do this. We're going we're to either succeed or fail uh, in the next decade. And I end with these two maps of North America that were drawn in Italy in the 1600s. And there's something you, you never could have known as a cartographer in Italy, geographically, going on with these maps. There's a Northwest Passage. But the Northwest Passage didn't exist. It wasn't sailed until 1904 by Roald Amundsen. It took him three years. He almost died. Dozens of people failed in this pursuit. It didn't exist, but they drew it in. And to me, these maps, they're perfect, perfect metaphors for humanity because we're the can-do species. We're the masters of, of, of being able to solve problems and, and going after it. And, and yet, at the same time, we're the masters of unintended consequences because no cartographer in 1600 could have been saying, uh, I'm going to draw this in because I think by 2007, atmospheric CO2 will have warmed the planet enough so that we can sail that thing in a small boat, which happened. Who were these guys? Who were, who were the people who were looking um, for a passage in this unbelievably harsh landscape? You can see on the right side of this, there's a ship in the ice. And if I asked you, if I did a little informal poll, what was motivating people like uh, William Perry, who explored this passage, and, and people who died and nearly died, and their ships were crushed in the ice. You would probably say, God, and country, and patriotism, and glory, and money. And actually, it was none of those. 
Barry Lopez, who's read these journals, read the journals these people kept, um, he described the, these guys as courageous and bewildered and dreaming people. Kind of like all of you. Kind of like humanity. What were they doing here? They were looking for some level of meaning in their lives. And if you look at the... Humanity has always been desperate for some level of meaning in a, in a difficult and incomprehensible existence. If you think about religion created between two and 4,000 years ago, the core principles of most religion were ways that we could live dignified lives and graceful lives and lives uh, tolerant and hopeful lives. And so what's amazing to me about climate change is it is in some ways the one-stop shop, the all-meaning solution uh, to all problems. If you solve climate, you solve water, you solve poverty, you solve indoor air pollution, you solve solid waste because if you have enough energy, you can solve waste. So it, it's this all-encompassing opportunity to endow our lives with meaning and hope and dignity and grace. And I end with this slide, uh, this famous Raphael painting of Lot's exile from the burning cities on the plain from Genesis. Very famous story that you know. Um, and Kurt Vonnegut writes about this. Um, the story is an, an angel sent from God said, hey, we're going to burn down those cities and you're going to have to escape. Just do me a favor. Don't look back or I'll punish you. So Lot and his family leave these burning cities, and Lot's wife looks back and is turned into a pillar of salt. And Vonnegut says, that's why I love her, because it was so human. Think about it. No less an authority than God told you not to look back. And yet, that city that's burning is where you grew up. It's where your children went to school. It's where your house is. You have to look back. It is, it, Vonnegut says, it was so human, and that's why I love her. And if you think about climate, if you present any of us in the room, if you present humanity with an opportunity to provide your life with meaning and grace and dignity and all these things we claim, I think we can't help but do it. I think it's in our blood and bones. So that's the hopeful ending to an otherwise potentially dismal talk. Thank you for coming, and I'm happy to take questions, and I'd, I'd love to sign your book and uh, hang out and chat with you. Our speaker has been Auden Schendler, Executive Director of Sustainability at the Aspen Skiing Company. You're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California, and now we have time for questions from the audience, and we're going to use that uh, wireless mic right there. So if you want to put a question to Mr. Schendler, please do. Well, I wanted to start uh, actually by saying thank you, because this book for me was very timely. Um, I've spent a lot of time studying sustainability, and I think, and this is also the question, um, I just want to hear your thoughts about the progression of a movement, because there was a time for very grandiose thought. And there's a time to, to kind of get down to business. And one of the things that I think about a lot is there's a lot of money coming toward retrofit and sustainability and great, important green things. But there's not the infrastructure. There aren't the contractors trained in building science. So all these things are happening kind of quickly and uh, seat of the pants. So I just would like to hear you talk about that maybe the time for the great inspirational speech is done. And as that 
we mature as a movement, how do we actually get the stuff done right so we don't throw good money after bad and be left with the energy efficiency problem? Hmm. Well, yeah, that's the big, big question. The, the theme of my book is uh, fewer visionaries, more grunts. Uh, we got to actually start doing stuff because at some point, if we have 10 years, we got to roll. And, and one of the pervasive problems, I think, is the, the, the misperception that individual action matters. And people hate it when I say this. And, and, and it's not that these, these issues, these measures, driving a Prius, one person called me and uh, said, I only open my refrigerator door when I need to. That's not going to solve our problems. You should do it, and it's important, but people do that because they understand it, and the scope of climate is so huge that we can't understand it. So I, I think the answer is we need to be brutally honest about the challenges, and that's why my talk is a little bleak, because I want you to understand the scale and scope of the problem, and then we need to respond to scale. And so the most important thing you could have done to solve climate in America was to elect Obama. Um, and he barely won, if you think about it. Uh, so we few got that done. And now you have to, as an individual or a business or a nonprofit or whatever you do, think about your biggest lever. It's a, you know, we can't mess this one up. We, we can't screw it up. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I found myself wondering, you know, the first slide with the uh, cooler and the, the vents to the outside. You know, when GE came into being better living through chemistry, there was a lot of unintended consequences. So when you open up your vent to the outside, did you check to see that the food is kept cool enough to be safe? Because or that animals it, don't crawl in that vent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm in the insurance business, and, and these <laughs> unintended uh -huh. consequences occur to me all the time, every time I read a loss run. Um, and so I yeah. just wondered... Well, one, I'm certainly capable of not checking that and having the food go bad or having an animal crawl in there. In this case, we did put a screen on the outside, and it's tied to a, a compressor. So if it gets too warm in the fridge, the refrigeration goes on. So, but good point. I've got a question relating to, I guess, the point that you made a second ago about kind of the relative insignificance of, of personal action. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of the fa failures and challenges that you presented in your talk had to do with, like, kind of front-facing things that the customers would notice or, you know, something that is either, you know, may adversely affect their experience or, like, make them change their behavior. Um, so, and there's, so there's kind of two schools of thinking about, like, what the sustainability revolution is going to be. Is it going to be behind-the-scenes stuff that they don't see, or is it going to actually require people to, you know, to change the way that they're living. So I was wondering if you had, if there are any things that you're doing um, at, that you have been successful that like are transparent to the people that are at your resorts and, and is that an important thing? Yeah, um, I, I, the, I think those things on the ground that are tangible are really important and we've done many of them and I can give you a website. Microhydroelectricity, uh, which powered Aspen until 1957, we've implemented some new microhydro programs. Solar, green buildings, all these things on the ground. Um, and, the, and then there's all kinds of stuff that isn't as visible that no one even knows about that I didn't want to bore you with. Like we're working on our utility board, trying to change the utility board. 
uh, because that's one of the most important things we can do. I, I think this question of personal action and, and, and is, is this a grassroots revolution or is it a top-down movement? And if you gave me 200 years and said solve climate, I'd, I'd, I'd start a grassroots movement. But think about civil rights. What if someone in 1850, call it, said solve civil rights? You got 10 years. Grassroots movement hasn't solved it yet. We're still working on it. Um, so we're not, we, we, this is going to require a hammer, and it's going to be a policy hammer. So that's, I, I think, the way that, that I come at this. And, and it's this, under this enormous time pressure. But as I said earlier, a lot of those programs that are visible and tangible are important to keep people going. Um, and, to, and, and also to keep people from saying you're a hypocrite because all you're doing is up in the sky. You know, you're not, you're not actually doing stuff. And when we go testify to Congress, as, as we've done, um, we can say we have done all this. So now we want to talk to you about policy. Yeah. Comment and a question. I would like how you ended in, in uh, acknowledging that uh, greenhouse gas is really kind of the one-stop shop, the, the most encompassing uh, solution for all of our issues. In a sense, it's kind of the Rosetta Stone uh, really reflects the sense of, of the ecological movement. It's a web of interactions that whatever we do affects everything else. And look, look what happened to greenhouse gas. Um, and, it, and it reminds me of how, you know, just opening the paper this morning, you know, we, we, we see all this conflict all over the world and, and nations still sparring. It's like, well, really the part of the solution here is, is that we have to end uh, an economy of militarism. We, you know, we have to spend all this money in greenhouse gas. We need at least $100 billion a year, yet we spend $700 billion for national security, which is pointless. It's utterly pointless you know, in, the, in, in the sense of the real issue is collective security. That's just a comment. But... I mean, that's, it seems, well, that's one of the things that needs to change, though, in our society, is a recognition that we have this bloated military budget that no one wants to talk about in Washington, D.C. And if we don't do change that, we can't get to the solution because we need the money to do that. So it's an issue of scale. But then the other question that gets to the behavior, and you, I think you've started to answer it, is, okay, we've got to make these decisions quickly. We've got to make these changes quickly. We have probably less than a decade to make them or we're going to be underwater. We'll be underwater anyway, which is a matter of how much water. Um, what are some of the, the tactics beyond what you've already said, you know, getting, the, getting to the CEO that will help make the behavioral changes that are necessary for us to make the, you know, make the shift? Yeah. Well, just to get at your first point very quickly, um, this problem seems unsolvable. And yet, uh, some scientists at Scientific American wrote a paper last winter uh, that said you could provide 70% of U.S. electricity, which is a huge piece of the greenhouse problem, and 30% of total U.S. power with solar. You could do that for this price tag, an investment by 2050 of $400 billion. We just lost $700 billion. We don't, the banks can't even tell us where the seven, the first bailout went. And you're telling me that for $400 billion, we could get 70% of U.S. electricity from solar and create jobs by improving transmission and making solar panels in the, in nationally and so forth and so on. That is both encouraging and, and mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and then the second question is, we need to provide fire support to our elected officials to help make this happen. Mm -hmm. um, and there hasn't been, in civil rights, there were huge protests uh, on the mall in Washington. And this issue is... Civil rights is an incredibly important issue, and this is arguably bigger. This is arguably bigger than the American Revolution. Um, why aren't we out in the streets? Um, I think 
you know, there's this lack of understanding and civic action on this. And Obama and, and all these great people like Stephen Chu that he's appointed, they need that, that support from the public. And right now it's, you know, people aren't doing it. They're checking their BlackBerry. So I, I think, how do you become a civic actor? And how do you personally find your own lever? Everyone's got a different deal going on. And I tried to give some examples of what a corporation can do. Um, but as individuals, you have more power, I think, than, than you imagine. As an example, if our CEO gets 12 handwritten letters from individuals, this is a CEO of a, we're a decent-sized company, um, not huge, there will be a senior-level meeting on that. And I bet you that happens at Kimberly-Clark, too, because these guys just aren't getting that kind of feedback. So maybe I answered, maybe I didn't. Hi. Um, I actually found really interesting, and I don't think I'd heard before, the insight that you never hear the uh, failures. And I think you hear, as you touched upon, the greenwashing failures and the risk that corporations face when they tell about what they do and those communication risks involved. But be curious on, you know, apart from reading your book, where are the other places where you learn how difficult it can be? That's why my book is so valuable. Seriously, I, I don't know of another person out there who's talking honestly about the disasters. And my book is a, a litany of mistakes. And the, the reason is that you, don't, you didn't learn to hit a curveball by hitting it. You learned by missing and missing and correcting and missing and hitting it. And so that's why I think this book is unique. Uh, <laughs> shameless plug. Uh, Patrick back there is an independent bookstore selling this book. And if you like to go browse at bookstores, buying it will support him. Think of this as a fundraiser for community. Um, but honestly, I'm looking, and I just got invited to a conference a week ago in Seattle, and they said, this is a conference of mistakes. And I went there, and I didn't hear a lot of mistakes. Um, because, as, as someone said to me when I nearly got fired uh, because of an article in Business Week that was too honest, and uh, they said, Auden, corporations want you to be Mr. Happy, shiny guy. They don't want the truth, necessarily. And I was saying, this is hard. Actually, it might be impossible. Uh, we got to think differently if we're going to solve it. Uh, so if you find those people, uh, email me. Here's my contact. <laughs> I'll look for them, too. <laughs> I'm Jules. I'm the guy that said, don't get screwed by your congressman. <laughs> Before my question, I want to, I've reviewed this book. Uh, I want to highly recommend it, um, not just because of the things you now know about it, but because the book is written in the same style as the talk you just heard. It's, it's one of the few readable books that's also worthy. So I, I loved it, and I think you probably will, too. Now Do my, you want me to pay you now, or I'll yeah, pay you later? This is my cousin. No, no it's not. <laughs> I, I have a sort of a harsh question for you. Let's talk about that leverage and talk about it for Californians. And here's where I would ask you to think about starting. Chevron, which has ads every 20 seconds on every channel that I watch as the greenest company in the entire universe and the history of the universe, is a California, Northern California company. Uh, Jules, what's the question? What do we do about it? The, the question is, for Californians, where do you suggest some of our strongest levers lie? California is so far ahead of the world on most everything. One of the things the world would have to do if we're going to solve climate is implement California scale efficiency throughout the world. Um, so it's hard to, to answer that uh, other than 
do more and better. California, like Aspen, is a lab for solving these problems. Uh, and you can, you, you can make the mistakes and carry, carry these issues forward because you are so far ahead of everyone. Chevron is one of the few companies, I think, out there that is actually greenwashing. Um, I, I've, maintained, I've maintained that if you, if you greenwashing is, is good for the environment, because if you're a company, typically, and you say, we're so great, and then someone says, you're not that green, uh, you've made all these claims, but you have employees putting intense pressure on you and the public to, to live up to your, your goals and your, and your statements. And so there's even flagrant greenwashing uh, is beneficial for the environment because it drives corporations in the right direction. But Chevron seems to have somehow escaped that. Uh, Jules, I don't know if I have, have the, the answer for you other than you're doing something right already and, and pushing the envelope even further the way cities like Berkeley are doing where they're rolling photovoltaics into uh, the mortgage. Uh, it's incredible. You guys are a lab for driving change. You're a radical state and, and everyone is already looking to California. So push it, I'd say push it another level and I'll, I'll help you. Yeah. Uh, thanks for your talk. It's great. I, I in fact, will buy your book. Thank you. Um, some, someday. Um, I came of, uh, kind of, kind of, a, came of age in the, in the Reagan era, uh, where it seemed that, uh, America shifted to a notion that markets will solve everything. Uh, and now maybe because of the financial crisis, we're thinking that maybe government actually has a role. Uh, but I think for mo maybe for most people, I don't know, but, but for a lot of people still in this country, markets still are the solution. And I'm curious if you think we can actually accept the idea that uh, we are living in a case of catastrophic market failure. Uh, and if, if people come to that point, can we actually, will there be the political will to use that hammer, the policy hammer, so that it's not a choice for the engineer, the manager, Little Nell, but it's a, it's a mandate that will keep them in business as opposed to going to jail or fine, et cetera. Yeah. Well, let me give you an example of uh, all those lighting retrofits that I, couldn't bear, I could barely pull off at the Little Nell. That was at an energy price. All my return on investments were calculated on $0.08 cents a kilowatt hour, which is one dishwasher load of energy, $0.08 cents for that dishwasher load. Well, I recently went to Minneapolis, and I was talking to a guy at a factor, and I said, why don't you do a retrofit? And he said, do you know how much I pay for power? And I said, no. And he said, $0.04. Cents. So everything that I barely pulled off is now twice as hard for this guy from an ROI perspective. So the, the market thing is, well, that's a failure in the market. Is it worth four cents to you to get your whole dishwasher cleaned? If you spent the time at the sink, that would be, I'd have to pay you more than four cents. So it's not properly priced. So we have to fix the market. The, the problem with all the free market guys is that they say it's a free market. It never was a free market. Nuclear, for example, if it had ever had to compete on the free market, you wouldn't have built one plant. There have been subsidies of nuclear almost equivalent to the actual price of the plant. So, and highways have been subsidies of, of vehicles. You know the whole story. So we need to fix this. And the, the worry that I have is that we're going to do a cap and trade program that creates this whole army of accountants and tons of room for shuck and jive and corruption. Um, and we don't actually get where we need to be, which is a carbon tax. In a perfect world, here's how it works. You go to the gas tank, you go to fill up your, your gas, and it's a thousand bucks. 
ouch. And you pay your utility bill and it's a thousand bucks for one month, but you don't have any income tax. So you're revenue neutral, but you're massively incentivized to get a more efficient car and, a more, and fix your house. Now, that's been discussed and it makes complete sense. It's being talked about finally and, and at very high levels. Why, when, you, when you tax something, you get less of it. Why are we taxing income? We want people to have more income. That's a very conservative idea. Why don't we tax something bad like pollution so we have less of it? Thank you, Auden. You've been listening to Auden Schendler, Executive Director of Sustainability for the Aspen Skiing Company. And now this program of the Commonwealth Club of California, observing its 105th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.